Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each show, we bring you insights from amazing guest speakers from the meetup. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs and innovators like Gary Vanerchuk, James Altucher, Brad Feld, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoy today's show. My kids do not believe that I give these talks, so please help me out. This has nothing to do with my talk or anything. Just take a picture of me. Do hashtag choose yourself at Jay Altucher. What's the hashtag for this event? Hashtag NJ Tech. Please just do it. And I can say to my kids, just search on hashtag NJ Tech and you'll see I was here. I'm not a bad father. I had to go. (laughs) Speaking of bad fathers. So, oh, first I want to tell you about Hoboken because Aaron's right. I came to Hoboken and I realized I haven't been here in 21 years, almost in another month and a half, it'll be 21 years. So in like August of 1994, I moved to New York City and I really thought I was incredibly wealthy. So HBO, which is in New Jersey, um, they offered me a job uh, making some pitiful amount of money, but it was like double what I was making before. So I went, I, I went to get my college degree, graduate school, I worked for a whole bunch of years, and then finally I thought, okay, now I'm in the real world. I'm making like 35,000 a year. I'm gonna, uh, I, I knew, I was smart enough to know I can't get an apartment in New York City, but I figured Hoboken, I grew up in New Jersey. I'm gonna get like, I'm gonna get a decked out penthouse in Hoboken on my 35,000 a year. So I, I bought a suit, like my dad took me. If you're Jewish, everybody's dad has like a guy where you go and get your suit. So I went to my dad's guy, and I get a suit, and it's like I'm really tight in the suit. Like he must have thought I weighed something much less than what I weighed. And uh, I'm going to these real estate agents, and I'm like, I think I want a view of the city and a pool in the building. And they're like, okay, well, can you spend, you know, 2,700 a month? And I'm like, I don't, I'm not even going to be making 2,700 a month. What are you talking about? So I ended up moving in. I, I used to hang out in Washington Square Park. Uh, dealing drugs. No. I was playing chess in the southwest corner of the park, and there was a guy there. He had, like, a space available for $300 a month. So after I lived with my parents for a month, I was 26 years old, living with my parents for a month. Uh, Never thought that would happen. I moved in with this other guy who was just like this street hustler in Washington Square Park. He turned out to be one room about the size of that table. He had the sofa, I had the futon, and I had a garbage bag with all of my clothes in them. And I would just pull like a, a jacket and tie out of my garbage bag every morning, never wash them for like a year, and uh, would walk to HBO a few blocks away, and thus began my career as an entrepreneur. But before that, it actually began like a few years before that. But I want to tell you one thing first, because I figure, I don't know, everybody here is at a different level of skill. I, I want to make sure you get one thing out of this talk, and I didn't know what it would be. So I called up a company, the CEO of a company I'm invested in, and I said, Stephen, just tell me one fact that I can just tell these people so at least they come out of here saying I learned something new today. And he said, okay, well, why don't you tell them that marijuana plants have both penises and vaginas? <laughs> and so I didn't really understand. So he said, he said, he said dude, 
there's fossils of marijuana plants that are like 60 million years old. And back then, uh, evolutionary, like plants would were all female basically, and they would just clone themselves. They didn't need men back then. And uh, only when there were times were tough, like if there was an ice age or something, then the, pl the marijuana plants would like turn into hermaphrodites. And so this way they could mutate more easily to adapt to rough environments. So how many of you just learned that fact right now, tonight? Thank God. The talk will be over right now. We're all, we're all set. So, but, but it's a really interesting fact. So, but by the way, then Stephen continues telling me, his name's Stephen, he continues saying, and you know, it's not just marijuana plants, it's also seahorses. And I'm like, Stephen, marijuana plants are funny, seahorses are boring. So just go back to the lab. You know, it's great having CEOs with Asperger syndrome, but you have to like occasionally train them a little bit. So I remember my, my, I, I can tell you my first memory. Not everybody can remember their first memory, but I can remember it really clearly. Like my dad, I was about three years old and my dad was literally shaking me awake. James, you have to get up, you have to go. And I'm like, I, what do you mean? I, I remember this clearly because it had, it had, I don't remember anything before this, but I remember thinking, I never had to go anywhere before. And he's like shaking me and he's like, there's gonna be a bus. And I'm like, where, Daddy, where's the bus taking me? And he says, well, first, you're gonna go to nursery school for two years. It's gonna be real exciting. You're gonna go to nursery school for two years. Then you're gonna go to kindergarten for a year. Then you have six years of elementary school, two years of medical school, middle school, four years of high school, four years of college, and then if you're gonna be a lawyer, another three years, and then you're gonna work for about 40 years, and then you'll retire, and you'll be grandpa's age. And like, and again, literally, at, before this moment, before this day, they could have just aborted me up to the age of three, and it wouldn't have mattered, like I wouldn't have remembered anything. But I'm thinking to myself, I'm gonna be grandpa's age the next time I don't have to like, wake up like this. Is, this, is this what you mean when you say you're Jewish? Like, this is horrible. I'm just kidding about the Jewish part. My wife and I just got back from the homeland, Fort Lauderdale, and it's really beautiful there. I really highly recommend it for everyone. It's a lot of racial strife, but it's okay. Um, so I'm thinking to myself, this is really, this really sucks. Something has to be done about this nursery school thing. And unfortunately, I didn't have enough guts to do anything about it. And I even remember now, I remember going to my nursery school graduation. We were wearing like these blue wings and those cute pictures. And then everything happened after that, like until I was finally thrown, thrown out of graduate school. Like I, they, I failed every single course except one that I took in graduate school. And uh, uh, then I worked for a few years and finally got a job in what I thought was the real world. And that was even worse. So here I had went undergrad for computer science and then grad school for computer science. And then I was a programmer for three years. I was like, a, my title was junior programmer analyst at HBO. And my programming skills were so bad, they had to send me to like a remedial programming school for me, for two months, for me to have this, the basic skill set to equal their worst employee. And it was really, it was really embarrassing because we were all in cubicles. So, you know, cubicles are like the worst invention in the world. So my boss comes into my cubicle and 
everybody in the six cubicles connected to mine. I don't know how they worked that out. This six is just like a hexagonal thing. And everybody in the cubicles next to mine could obviously hear what he's saying. He's like, James, it's really not working out for you here, but we're going to do everything we can to help you out. Like, your skills are really weak. Why don't you call this number? We're going to send you to this school. We'll pay for it. And I have to be grateful for that, like they, that they did that, because then I finally did learn that I do not want to be a computer programmer for the rest of my life. So, so I pitched them this idea. I said, look, I loved HBO. I loved everything about it. And you have to, you have to love what you do. And, and also, you know, people debate that. Like, you know, Mark Cuban, for instance, says, he, you don't have to love what you do. W once you get good at something, you'll love that. And, uh, but I, I asked him specifically about that, by the way, this is just an aside. I asked him specifically about that, and I said, you know, you said that quote, but if you look at your biggest success was broadcast.com, um, it was because you wanted to watch basketball games from Ohio, you wanted to watch them while you were in Texas. It's because you really love basketball that you started this company. And it's because you love basketball you bought the Dallas Mavericks. And it's because you love movies you bought you started HDNet and you became a big investor in Lionsgate. Like these are not because you thought nobody invests in a movie company because they love because they want to make money. That's stupid. So so he's like, okay, well and I and, and so then but but he said, you know, I have to tell you I really love money. And I'm like, okay, well what were you doing the second you became a billionaire? And he says, I'll tell you, I was sitting naked at my computer and I was hitting refresh on Yahoo Finance until I saw Yahoo stock at high enough to become a billionaire. So, okay, you love money too. That's fine. <laughs> I respect that. But I really loved HBO. And I watched, I knew every HBO show inside and out. I knew every Showtime show inside and out because they were competitors, still are. I knew all of the divisions within Time Warner. I stopped reading Newsweek and I would only read Time Magazine. Like I was like this weird, like, okay, if I'm gonna work here, I'm gonna just know everything. And, uh, and I said to, you know, here I was, this junior programmer guy, and I said, literally kind of found my way against my boss's wishes, against his boss's wishes, his boss, his boss, his boss. I went to the CEO of HBO, uh, who's now the CEO of Time Water, and I said, listen, HBO is so great at original programming. Like at the time it was uh, the Larry Sanders show, and there was a show called Dream On, and there was all the boxing shows. Uh, HBO is so great at original programming. Why don't you do, there's this new thing called the web. Why don't you do original web programming? And he's like, uh, do you have an idea? So I thought about it a little bit, and I said, yeah. How about I'll go around with a microphone like this and a recorder and I'll have someone take video and I'll interview people at, who are walking around New York City at three in the morning on a Tuesday night. Saturday night's not interesting because that's everybody. But Tuesday night, if any of you remember, try to remember the last time you were out on a Tuesday night at three in the morning, you were fucked up, right? There was something, <laughs> there was something bad happening. So I know this for a fact now because I talked to everybody for three years. I talked to everybody who was walking around. I wasn't a programmer anymore. I was doing this for HBO Web, and then I did it uh, as a pilot for their documentary series. And uh, I talked to everybody who was out on Tuesday nights at 3 in the morning, and they were, it's like you have to turn over a rock. I turned over every rock in New York City. And then what happened was some companies, other entertainment companies started coming to me and saying, hey, that thing you did for HBO, can you do something like that for us? 
And, uh, and I just said yes to everything. And so I was working in my little cubicle at HBO, making like 35000 a year or whatever it was. And I was making another 100000 a year or 150000 a year doing websites for all these other companies, even HBO's competitors, every division within Time Warner. I did timewarner.com. I did americanexpress.com. I did, literally, I was negotiating all these deals. I was sitting in my cubicle trying to be as quiet as possible and talking to conedison.com. And, you know, and then I developed a particular niche, you can say, which, you know, you could probably tell what it is by looking at me, but I, I started making the websites for every gangster rap label. So I knew, I knew all of them. Like, the Wu-Tang Clan, I was like an honorary member. And they would, everybody would come... So, so I, so for 18 months I was doing this from my cubicle at HBO. You can't, everybody says to me, oh, I have an idea, can I just raise money now and quit my job? And that's not, that's not how the real world works. Now that does work in some cases, like because there's so much venture capital money out there now, but particularly then, and in general, that does not happen. So I had a, an office on 19th Street, but I was working at HBO 42nd Street in New Jersey. And uh, I, I had a dozen employees in my office at this point, and I would leave HBO at like four o'clock or whenever I could sneak out, and I would go and just stay up all night and work on all these clients. And so, and and I will tell you, there was I had kindedison.com. You know, they were we were preparing for their their internal Y2K communications, and it was. Um, it was really great, because so I, I was setting up the website for that. So all the people involved in like the electricity grid for New York City were like in the room. And, uh, and I said to them, where are you guys going to be December 31st, 1999? And they said, out of New York City. No way we're going to be here. But of course, everything worked fine. So, But uh, I'll tell you, there was one thing in common with every single client I had. And I had maybe, you know, probably 40 or 50 clients at, at our peak. Uh, every single client asked for a bribe. So, so again, this is like the real world where uh, people want favors. I'm not saying they just wanted straight out, like, give us $10,000 and we'll give you this job. People wanted favors for their nephew. People wanted this. People wanted that. People wanted us to hire their design firm that they owned on the side to do the design for their own website. And I was doing that, too. My company did, ended up doing all of HBO's websites. Who do you think hired them? I hired them. So HBO was our biggest client for a while. So um, it's really great, again, with my kids. Like, they'll see some movie being advertised, like, you know, some reboot of some movie. And I'm like, oh, I did the website for the original. And they're like, ugh, whatever, Dad. Just let us watch TV. Uh, so, so again, what you ha what, one thing about this business, though, it was profitable from day one. It had to be because I had no money. And no, none of my, it's not like any of my employees were not taking paychecks. So they had to take paychecks. Every single client was profitable. Uh, profits, you have to, by the way, no, and these were great presentations of these companies. Um, and I wish I had asked the question, but I was a little shy and maybe so was everyone here. No one asked them how much revenues or profits they made, which is a, a critical question. So, so I've been, I've been a venture capitalist, I've been a hedge fund manager, I've been a fund of hedge funds, uh, I've run 
20, more than 20 businesses, and I'm an advisor now. It was, I've been scaling it back a little bit because it was too much, but I've been an advisor for up to 30 companies. And that's really the only thing I ever gave a shit about talking to any of these companies. Like, sure, I care if, you know, there, there's the whole thing where someone's got a new refrigerator and if just and if just everybody if one percent of the people in china buy my refrigerator then i'm going to be a billionaire well i don't even care what the size of the market is because all of that is just kind of doesn't really matter like i want to know someone has sold a product so i had to like go out there and hang out with i don't know the wu-tang clan and sell a product and so finally I quit HBO and joined my company, my own company full time when I felt it could support me and all these employees for six months. And I get there on the very first day, uh, our client who at that time was our biggest client, I call them up and I say, I, I quit, I'm here full time now for you, what can I do? And they said, uh, we don't really need you anymore. And I literally, like, I walked out of the office. I didn't want, my brother-in-law was working there. I didn't want anybody to see. I walked out of the office, and I started crying. Because this was the first time I really was now in the real, real world. And my boss at HBO told me, listen, when you leave this company, you're not James at HBO anymore. No one's going to return your phone call anymore, ever again. And it's true. No one's ever returned my phone call ever since that. <laughs> so, so I knew I was in trouble. But... Bit by bit, we built up, and then I saw my little sister was learning how to do, like at the time, this is the you know mid to late 90s, everyone thought HTML was like rocket science, which is, obviously it's not, and I realized that because my little sister was in junior high school or high school, I don't even know how old she is, she, she was telling me she was taking like HTML or build a website classes, so I instantly sold the company. And uh, because you, I was charging $75,000 for a three-page website, that can no longer happen. And uh, so it, it, it kind of had its boom and then it didn't. Uh, and then, but I didn't realize, here I was, I made all these smart decisions in a row. Like I made like 20 smart decisions in a row. And then I said, you know what? I sold this company for $15 million and it's all mine. I was cashed out. And I said, I'm so, the reason this is not bragging is because of what I'm about to tell you. Uh, I'm so smart, I'm going to invest only, the internet's going to be the biggest thing ever. I'm going to invest in 50 internet companies. And, and I did. And then, and I also bought, like, I finally bought my penthouse apartment, but in New York, not in Hoboken. Sorry, I had to use the word New York, because it's much more impressive there. Uh, <laughs> and... And then I went dead broke, like every, every, I'm not even saying like I had like a hundred thousand left or a million left. I remember walking to my ATM and I had $143 left in my ATM and I was scared to death. Like I had this feeling like, oh my gosh, I had, I blew it. I'm never going to, I had a lottery ticket. This internet boom is over. I have $143 left. I had no more confidence in myself. I really blew it, and this is it. So I, I called, I, I really, like I was on the floor and I was really considering, you know, I've still got a heavy life insurance policy. I've got two little babies. Maybe they would be better off with the life insurance policy than with me. And so I remember I, I called my parents also, and I said to them, look, can I just drive down 100 miles to where you live and, and pick up like a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars 
I don't even know if I'm going to be able to afford diapers for the weekend the way this little one is going now. And uh, so, and I remember my parents said, no, we paid, we paid for you all the way through college, through this. I had just bought their house. I'm not going to argue with my parents to this audience, but uh, I, they said no, basically. And so, but I, so I hung up the phone because I couldn't deal with it. I needed to figure out like my solution. And uh, they tried calling back, I never picked up. And uh, for six months, so I, so I managed to eke out a little bit of money out of the house. I moved 70 miles north to a house, 120th the size, uh, and I had no job, I had no prospects. I was trying to figure out just how to make any money at all to pay the rent. And I remember about six months later, I had not talked to my parents at all. Uh, my sister calls me and she says, look, dad has gone into a coma and he, I just never spoke to him again. He died and that was that. So uh, there was, there's no moral to that story at all. Uh, but so what happened was at that point, I was just thinking, boy, I just blew it so bad. I made so many bad mistakes after making so many good mistakes. And I started to figure out, well, what did I do wrong? And I really, I became, just like I became obsessive about the, the internet and programming for the internet and making websites and so on, I became obsessed about finance and how to make money. Because um, I, learned, I learned a little bit how to make money and how to get a customer and a little bit about sales and negotiating. But I didn't really understand this whole like keeping money thing. I knew how to make it, I didn't know how to keep it. So I started uh, programming software to model the stock markets. And I... I what I would do is, every day I would go to the local cafe and I would write down all of these ideas for everybody who was like my hero. And at first, I didn't do that. At first I wrote to all these heroes of mine, like I would write to Warren Buffett and I would say, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And I sent out about 40 of these emails, nobody responded, zero people responded. It's not like Warren Buffett is suddenly gets my email and he says, yells out to his secretary, hold everything on my schedule James Altucher is going to buy me a cup of coffee and I just make room for him. Nobody did that. So instead what I had to do was I had to research everybody and come up with actual ideas to help them make money. So I sent, So then I started doing this and doing it and doing it and maybe out of about 40 emails, three people responded uh, one of them did give me a job uh, writing for him, uh, and then later on he bought a company I started for, for a lot of money. Another guy gave me all, he was a big hedge fund manager, well-known hedge fund manager. He gave me all his personal money to manage, uh, and, so that's, and so then I started raising money from other hedge fund managers because they said, well, this guy's in, so you should go in. And so I built up a hedge fund. So I had two alternative careers going. And the third guy, this was in 2002, 2003, the third guy I, I didn't respond to, and I only responded to him last year. And I said, you, you probably don't remember that email I wrote to you like 13 years ago, but uh, I'm responding now. Can you come on my podcast? And he did. So I'm grateful for that. It was a great podcast, actually. Nassim Taleb, you should check it out. Of the three, he's the only one I'm still friends with. Um, so... So one thing that's important here is that along the way, I was always doing multiple businesses. So the average 
let's say the average millionaire doesn't just have his, his company that he starts. The average millionaire has at least seven different sources of income. Uh, and now, of course, there's examples and counterexamples and anecdotes and so on. But like a job is a hard way to save up a lot of money. Like there's, again, there's anecdotes, some janitor at Microsoft after 40 years retires with millions of dollars, but it's very rare at a job to make a ton of money. Um, and, but an being an entrepreneur is very difficult too, and I have to give credit to everybody who's just a pure entrepreneur on one company, because an entre entrepreneur has a known rate of failure, and there's no way to avoid this known rate of failure. Like every venture capitalist tries, and all of them have the same uh, percentage rate of failure, which is about 85%. Doesn't matter how good the venture capitalist is, nothing matters. 85%, the best venture capitalist, that's their rate of failure. So entrepreneur, when you create a company, it's as if you're creating a job for yourself, with which instead of having a job, now you have an 85% known rate of failure. So I always encourage people to have multiple sources of income. So when, it's, when I say I've started 20 companies, a lot of them were at the same time. And a lot of them were really bad. Like I would just, I would just go to like some freelancing site and spec out a company and just have them make it and then I would start running it and so on. Finally, one site worked out. Um, uh, I got, it was a financial website. Uh, I started it, almost, in the, again, it was profitable from day one. I had about a million unique visitors in the first month and it kept, it kept going. And, uh, and then I sold that company to thestreet.com. And then something really shitty happened, which is that I decided, okay, finally, I broke the, the pattern. And what happened a year later? I was dead broke again. Like, I just, I was like, holy shit, how could this, I bought a house? How could this have happened again? And I remember just the rain coming down, I'm like, for, the rain is always, I'm picturing in this thing. Uh, rain's coming down, like I'm in a hammock, I'm just depressed, and there's nothing I can do. And then uh, my, my now ex-wife finally divorced me, as she well should have, like, years earlier. And, you know, I was just, I was by myself, I was lonely, I had no prospects again, I had no money again. And uh, I did the only thing that seemed reasonable at the time to me, uh, it was like Thanksgiving Day. I was by myself in like some crappy hotel room, and I was gonna get a sandwich, a turkey sandwich at the diner. And I put, I did the only thing that seemed reasonable to me at the time. I put an ad on Craigslist, and in the ad, I said, uh, "I've had a recent brain injury, and <laughs> and when I woke out of it, I was psychic. So if you have any questions, please ask me." Uh, and so I went out for my turkey sandwich, and when I got back, I had hundreds of emails. So of course, I immediately threw out all the emails from men, and I just, I just started responding to the emails from women. And you would think, the first question that I'm always asked is, well, did you end up like dating any of these women? And of course the answer is, look at me, of course not, like I didn't, <laughs> what do you think I am? Like. Uh, so, but at least then I started getting back into, I felt like I was helping people because no, nobody believed I was a psychic and I ended up becoming friends with many of these people and it was fun, I enjoyed doing it. And so I kind of got to this point where I can't do this anymore, I can't have this up and down lifestyle anymore. And so 
I started to think to myself, what's, and there were other ups and downs in the middle of all of this as well. It, it wasn't just the first time. Sorry, I keep pulling up my pants. I didn't wear a belt. Uh, so, I just had to explain just in case, I didn't want my, just in case my pants fall on the floor. Uh, so, I, what kept working for me on the way up and what was failing for me on the way down? And I decided, I, I came up with what I call, and what many people who read me uh, know I talk about this, I, I, and I talked about this in the, in the book that you all have. Uh, I, I focused on, okay, I need to be physically healthy. Uh, so that means sleeping a certain number of hours a day. I wasn't sleeping at all. Like when you're worried about money, it's impossible to sleep. I was just adding up numbers and just waking up anxious. It was just the worst thing. So I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating well, I wasn't drinking well. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't really moving. I was just lying in bed all day. I was just depressed. So that was the first thing. I needed to start walking at least every day and sleeping. And the second thing was emotional health. I realized I had nobody good around me. Like everybody was kind of like bringing me down or talking bad about me or not really helping me or supportive. So I decided bit by bit, you can't turn this overnight, but like bit by bit, I would go to meetings just like this and start meeting people and making friends and, and seeing how I could help my friends. I had a lot of skills, but I had no assets. So I started making friends for the first time in maybe a long time. And so that's emotional health. Mental health, I started cr creatively. Now, I don't mean like I was going insane, although in that period I was actually invested at one point in like a mental hospital, which, which was another one of my ups and downs, but that's another story. But, but I started writing down 10 ideas a day because I sort of feel the idea muscle works like any other muscle. If you don't use it every day, it atrophies. So, uh, like if you're if you're lying in bed, uh, for instance, after a, let's say a bicycle accident for a month, you literally need physical therapy to walk again. And so it's the same thing with the idea muscle. You actually need uh, you actually need to exercise it every day. And so I started doing this and started writing down ten ideas and ten ideas for myself. 10 ideas for books I could write, 10 ideas for businesses I could start, 10 ideas for Amazon, 10 ideas for Facebook. Just started sending out ideas day after day after day. And, uh, and then finally, what I call spiritual health, but that doesn't mean necessarily prayer. It just means I've got to stop being so anxious about the future. Like anxiety will never, ever cure tomorrow's problems, but it always was draining energy for me today. So I had to avoid anxiety, I had to avoid all the regret of, I was so regretful for just constantly losing money. And I had to just do these four things, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, these four things. I just had to check the box every day that I'm doing them because what really turned out to be true for me and maybe true for other people was that the best predictor of a successful tomorrow was being a successful today. And along the way I started to realize other things. I would try to get a book published and I was always kissing the ass of the publishers and they didn't know anything. They were like the worst. I don't know how many people of you have published books. They're like the biggest bunch of liars, whatever. They're all nice people. They're my friends. I don't care. <laughs> uh, whatever. The companies are liars. Uh, so I decided, okay, look, I'm going to self-publish. Or I'm going to... I met one guy uh, once. He told me he wanted to start making videos, but he didn't have the right video equipment. 
And I said to him, what, what's the video camera on your phone? What kind, of, what kind of phone do you have? He had like a video camera that was 10,000 times better than anything HBO would have used 10 years ago. So I'm like, why don't you start creating YouTube videos and, and doing this? I, I realized there was something very consistent in all the people who were succeeding versus all the people who were not doing anything. And that was they were eliminating all the gatekeepers that were in their way, whether it was a publishing company or a movie company or their boss or whatever. I'm sure we can all think of different gatekeepers in, in all of our lives. Sometimes it's school. You feel like you have to get through the educational system to get, get a certain type of job when it's just not true. So that's what came up with this idea of my book, Choose Yourself, which is that nobody... If, if you don't make your own, if you don't follow this daily practice, which let, puts you in position to start having ideas and being really creative and, and being able to choose yourself, if you don't choose your own self, no one else is going to choose you. If you don't create your own ideas, no one else is going to say, hey, here's an idea to work on so you can get rich while I stay over here and whatever. Uh, you have to, every step of the way, you have to choose yourself for, for success because no one else is going to choose you. It's the same analogy as like the, the airplane going down. Uh, and you might have like a one-year-old baby sitting next to you, but they always say, put the oxygen mask on your own face first, then put the oxygen. You might have a dead baby by that time, but then put the oxygen mask on the baby. So now that you've all laughed about a dead baby, <laughs> I'm open to Q&A. So... <laughs> Yes. The reason that uh, you know, even you have a risk of having a dead baby, you don't want to have two dead people, right? Right. If you're not going to take care, you know, people say, "Oh, I've got to like take care of my business." Uh, how? Here, I will tell you this. I have heard this so many times. First off, many companies fail. Many companies I've invested in have failed, and I say to the CEO, "Well, what are you going to do now?" And and the first, what they always say is. Oh my God, first I just need to rest and get back in shape. Usually by then, they've gained 50 pounds between the time they started the business and the time that it failed. They're just not in shape. They're not coming up with ideas. You know, I'm not in like shape either, but, I'm not, but I, folk, I try to do at least 1% improvement every day. It's impossible to say, oh, okay, I'm going to be super emotionally healthy now. Um, I didn't talk to my dad the last six months of his life. Fuck that. I'm just going to be healthy right now. It takes a while to overcome things that you're anxious about and regretful about and so on. Um, and so I always focus on, well, at least that I tried to do a little bit each day. Did I at least try to help someone every day? Because that usually requires being physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy and allows you to think beyond just your own concerns. So, so yes. So... This, this has been a critical component of any success I've had since then. I've since started and sold companies. I've since managed money successfully. I've written a bunch of books. I have uh, uh, many businesses right now that are, you know, eight figures in revenues. So, and this is my daily practice. Yes? It seems like... Right. So, so a lot of what's a lot of figuring out how to allocate time involves.
figuring out what to throw out. So, and I mean that in, on every level. So, let's talk about the physical level. Like a couple of months ago, uh, my wife and I threw out everything in our house. Like literally, uh, throw out slash donate. Um, thousands of books, uh, almost all of our clothes. Uh, we always had these sheets, but we've never had guests. Like who has? Everybody has extra sheets in their house. No one ever has any guests. So we just threw out all the extra sheets. Uh, we we had all these old computers lying around. Someone one day will fix them. No, <laughs> we just threw them out. We didn't even donate them. And people, I wrote an article about this. People were like angry, like, why didn't you donate them? It's actually really hard to donate like 30 garbage bags worth of, full of stuff. Nobody wants to come and pick them up. And we didn't want 30 garbage bags lying around. So we just literally threw out like a ton of stuff. We allowed for a day for people to like pick up, go through the garbage bags and pick up whatever they wanted. And then we just threw it all out. So... So it's amazing, though, when you walk into a room and it has nothing in it but maybe your work item, like a computer, you get a lot more done. Things aren't, like, clouding your brain, like, oh, maybe I should look at this first. I just do my work when I need to do my work. And so the other thing that's very important to realize, your brain go, loses functionality during the day. That If you try to, like, do something super productive at 2 in the morning, if you woke up at 6 in the morning, you're not going to succeed. Uh, and there's evidence that the brain is a hundred times more powerful in the morning than right before you go to sleep. So, and specifically starting the two hours after you wake up. So if you wake up at six, from eight to about 11 is when your brain is at its most peak productive time. So during my most peak productive time, I know what I'm doing. I'm either writing or podcasting. The reason I do that is because I like people to know who I am, and I like people to know what my opinions are and what I stand for, because that creates, for me, opportunities. Uh, my wife, during her peak productive times, she does yoga. Other people do other things. But it's very important for me to kind of, I believe in this kind of choose yourself message, and I know as this gets out, and I know as I'm honest about it, and honest about my failures, people say, oh, here's a trusted, here's a guy we could trust, uh, talking about our problems because he talks about his problems. So this gives me opportunities to be an advisor for companies, to be on the boards of companies. I've made more money being on the boards and advisor of companies than I ever have starting companies. So, so, uh, and then after, after that peak productive time, then it kind of slows down for me. Uh, really, you don't really need to work like eight hours a day. That's like a whole myth. So I might do a few business phone calls but now I'm even trying to limit those because nobody really needs to talk to me. They just want to talk, but the better for them to work. So, or they're going to talk about seahorses or whatever. So, so really, I don't. After that peak productive time, unless there's something really happening, I don't. I read. I focus on improving my writing, and then I spend time with uh, my family. Um, but I work really hard on reading, writing, podcasting. Like, I work very hard at that. And then the advising, when things happen, uh, I, I will react to those. Those are the things I'm more reactive to. So, more questions. Yes. Um, so, I really enjoy your talk. Thank you. Um, Right. So 
here's what, I, here's what I would do. I would advise you to do the same thing I did. So my business was starting to grow, my very first business, and, and then a much later business that I had, I did the exact same thing. Everybody wanted to work for my business. Everybody said, I want to be head of sales, or I want to be head of marketing, or I want to do this, and I need 5%, 10%. Suddenly there's all these negotiations. But I didn't see any customers immediately coming from them. So everything, again, profit is the purifier of a business. So if someone is going to bring me immediate profits, I, I don't believe, they, people say, oh, you need six months to scale up a salesperson. Not a startup. That's a mature business. A startup, you're the salesperson. You have to expand your business first so that you could then afford easily uh, the new people. So right now, for instance, I have kind of a media business that I've sort of organized a lot of my activities around. It's, it's already on track for like an eight-figure run rate. Started it about three, three or four months ago. And now, just now we're hiring. So we have maybe close to seven figures in profits. Just now we're, we're moving beyond four employees. So you gotta be very careful hiring anybody when, you, when you're in that kind of initial build-up phase. Like get seven figures in revenues, get profits, then you could start hiring somebody. In my very first business, it was myself, my brother-in-law, my sister, and a few people that I got like super cheap, and then a few people I was outsourcing before, and then we had about a million in revenues, then finally I hired a secretary, finally I hired a project manager. I was project managing every project, which meant I was, my brother-in-law was French and didn't speak English very well, so I was writing the proposals to HBO that were coming to me and putting his name on them, and then I was project managing the project with me on the other side. I know this sounds horrible, but again, this is like, but the, the, the result was great. I was upfront with HBO about what I was doing. There was no other place for them to go. So, uh, I'm not trying to excuse myself. It was horrible. Um, but don't hire anybody. If you're, if you're feeling, you know, if you, you, know, you know, you kind of made a, a, a gesture when you were asking, like, you had this kind of rough feeling. You know, there's more, like, neurotransmitters, there's more serotonin in the gut than in the brain. And so when you're feeling funny about something, it usually means your brain is telling you this is not a good idea. So pay attention to that feeling. It's very important. Uh, two questions. One is a lot of people who, who shared that stage talk about focusing on one thing and being great at that one thing. And you've had a different message. So I'm curious how you manage focus across a variety of projects. And the second thing is I know there's a lot of people in our group or probably in this room who are hesitant to share ideas because they think someone's going to steal their idea. And you also have a, a different view there. So I'm curious if you could share both those things, focus and, and sharing ideas. Yeah, okay, so the focus thing, I've never really heard of anybody uh, super successful focusing on just one thing. So, I mean, a great example is, uh, well, I won't use Bill Gates because he's kind of retired, but uh, like take Larry Page. Google, you know, when they first started, A, he was interested in many things. He was really interested in how do you decide what scientific papers are more important than other scientific papers. And so that was the original basis of the PageRank algorithm, and he applied it then to web pages. So what did he focus on? Did he focus on doing his PhD research on the ranking the importance of scientific papers, or did he focus on a search engine? He did both. Uh, and then, did he wanna be a businessman? No, he tried to sell Google to Yahoo for a million dollars. So, he, so his investors introduced him to Jerry Yang and David Philo at Yahoo. 
Larry Page and Sergey Brin went, drove up to Yahoo and said, can you please buy us for a million dollars? And Yahoo said, no, we're out of it. The search engine business is a dead business. And then they tried to go to Excite for 700, they would have sold Google to Excite for $750,000. And their investors were begging them to do this. And Excite said, nah, sorry, we're out of it. So then finally, they basically bought a company that provided 99% of their revenues and now what are they focused on? Well, are they focused on Google, the search engine, or are they focused on driverless cars? So I just went out to Google and visited the guy who's in charge of driverless cars. And he said, Sergey Brin spends 80% of the time in his office, in, in this guy's office, going over the driverless cars. They have, I don't even know what's public and what's not. They have these, they're wor working on these, uh, 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 they're working on these electron kites that are gonna like beam down power onto cities. They're working on Project Loon, which is like uh, gonna be Wi-Fi over on, on these uh, balloons. Uh, they're working on these cancer magnets. You're gonna wear them like a bracelet and it's gonna attract all the cancer cells in your body to these magnets. So they're not focused on any one thing. They're, try they're, they're trying to solve billion person problems and they're throwing whatever they can at the wall that solves billion person problems. So that's Google, the best company in the world. So I always like to emulate the best company in the world, which leads me to your second question, which is, what, how do I feel about giving away ideas? So if I go to google.com and I say, tell me everything you know about motorcycles, Google's gonna be very honest with me. Google's gonna say, listen, I don't know anything about motorcycles, but here's 10 other sites that know a lot about motorcycles, and we really research this for you. So just hit one of these sites and you'll be fine. And by the way, three of these sites are paying us. Just wanna be totally honest with you. And then the next time you wanna find out about like, I don't know, STDs or whatever, who are you gonna go to? Are you gonna go to the motorcycle site that Google just, Google measures their success not by how much money they're making, but by how quickly they get rid of you. So, so they, they, you go to their site, you do a search, and then if you're out of there really quickly, that's a success and that's what they measure. So ideas are meant to, you're, you're, you're not meant to have one great idea, you're meant to be the source of ideas and that's how you make a lot of money. If you're the source, everybody comes back to you. And this is true, I've seen this true I've, I've, even, I've even, this, even seen this true at the poker table, but that's maybe a longer explanation. But if you're the source where everybody goes for like chips or ideas or money or, what, or some other resource, then you're the one who's going to make more money than anybody else. So there's a saying, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's not really true. Uh, uh, or, or people say execution is everything. That's not true either. Uh, Execution is just a subset of ideas. If I have a good idea, I also need to come up with 10 ideas. How am I going to easily start executing on this idea without wasting too much time? Because time is a really a valuable resource. But ideas you should give away, easy execution you should give away. You should always over deliver even if they're not paying for it uh, because then you're the one people remember and they come back to you. They're only gonna remember a few people and only a few people are gonna remember you specifically. So that's how you really make money on this planet. In, in every case, in 100% of cases. So, yes? So you really said really big ups and downs, uh, pretty exciting ups and downs, and now it seems like you're, you're kind of more straight and narrow and, and more structured and focused. So which would you say, I mean, 
we talked about Asperger's too. It seems like these geniuses, the people that make tons of money, generally have really extreme boundaries versus the people that tend to be more structured. So where, where would you say you fit best, and what works best? Uh, I think people who are structured make more money. Now we can always point to examples. I don't know really. I've never made, you know, call it. Uh, my biggest failure when I had 15 million was wanting 100 million. And I swear to God, I, I would dream all the time. Oh, I'm gonna. Have, here's what I'm gonna do with 100 million. I'm gonna buy a two-minute ad on the Super Bowl, and I'm just gonna stand there and, and like say nothing. <laughs> and uh, this is like what I would think about. And then I'd really kind of like go through my head, like, well, then people are going to argue with me, like, oh, he should have just given that money to charity. And, and I would come up with arguments in my head. This, was, this is how I'd be thinking what I would do with $100 million. So, so that's when I was crazy, and I would lose it all. And when you're really structured, just for 99, the rest of the 99.9% .9 of the population that's not going to make a billion dollars or $100 million or $50 million, uh, when you're really structured and organized and you're doing and you're just focusing on 1% improvement every day in physical, emotional, you know, mental and spiritual health, this is how you make money. If you structure your life around that today, not be super anxious about tomorrow, forget about the past, except for learning from mistakes. If you just focus on, on this idea and be structured around that as much as possible, like my question about the allocating time. I make sure I allocate time during my most important period is when I know my brain is at its peak productivity. I took a nap before coming here, so I would make sure I'd be productive right now. And so if you always make sure you're as structured as possible, actually, then that's the key to success. Doesn't mean being like so regimented, no, I can't do that, I'm gonna do this. Like I explore, you know, I give talks, I go out and do things. Uh, that are interesting, um, like I went to visit Google. You can't not, I had an opportunity. It, it turned out, I found this out by accident. This guy I went to grad school with is like the number three guy at Google. I totally did not know that. As soon as I found that out, I got on a plane and went to Google and spent some time with him. And, and then while I was there, someone called me up and said, hey, would you like a tour around Facebook? Which is amazing, by the way. I don't know if you've ever seen like the Facebook campus. It's like unbelievable, I wanna live in there. And then I went to LinkedIn. The reason I went to LinkedIn is I sent them my 10 ideas at one point and I got invited to this, participate in this round table of you know, sharing ideas about education and jobs and so on. Amazon, I've sent my 10 ideas how self-publishing could be done you know, even better. And Amazon invited me out to Seattle and I've had a fun time visiting them. Did I make any money from them? No, but I made increased my network I've increased my knowledge because I got to see everything they're working on. And who knows when some company I'm involved in down the road might need access to that network. So my network is created by my ideas. I don't pay money for a network. I pay ideas for network. And that's all part of having structured and regiment, structured time. Yes. Uh, I think in, that's a really great question. I think very little is luck. It's like sort of saying, was, was Bobby Fischer, I, I don't want to compare myself to him. Uh, I think luck 
sparks the fire. And then you have, you know, like talent sparks the fire, luck sparks the fire, whatever you're interested in. Let's say tennis, you know. Uh, but that fire could burn out really quickly if you don't really work at it and constantly keep watch over it and constantly put wood back on the fire when it starts to go down. You have to really, really work at it. Now, Malcolm Gladwell has popularized this notion of you have to do 10,000 hours of work, which I, so, I sort of believe if you're gonna go into an area that is like well known, like let's say you're gonna write mystery novels, then you have to put in 10,000 hours writing mystery novels. But if you, I kind of think a better idea is what I call idea sex, which is you have, you, you get somewhat skilled at one area, then you get somewhat skilled at another completely different area, and then you combine them, and voila, you're the best in the world at the intersection. And that doesn't require 10,000 hours, that requires maybe 1,000 hours. So I gave an example this morning in a post I wrote. Uh, G.I. Joe, this guy, uh, combine, you know, only girls were playing with dolls at this point. So this guy said, well, boys need to play with dolls too. So he figured, okay, I'm gonna make a doll just, just like, that looks exactly like the female dolls, except I'm gonna put like marine fatigues on it and call it G.I. Joe. And this was like the first male doll and it sold a sold billion dollars worth of dolls like almost immediately. So again, that guy wasn't like, he didn't put in his 10,000 hours, but again, he intersected two very good ideas and that's how he became the best in the world. And this is related to the focus issue as well. So it's always the intersections. You know, Facebook wasn't the first social network, right? It was like the fifth. There's Tripod, GeoCities, Friendster, MySpace, Facebook. And if I'm missing any, I don't know. Six Degrees. Uh, Six Degrees, and then there was the one um, that Mark Pincus started as well. Anyway, um, but, but what did Mark Zuckerberg combine? Um, so he basically combined stalking with the internet. And, <laughs> and what's interesting is, why was it stalking? Because Facebook was the first social network that required identity. So all the other social networks you could sign on anonymously. Facebook, you couldn't. Now maybe a little bit more you can, but particularly in the beginning, there was no way to sign on uh, totally anonymously. You had to have an identity. And that's why Facebook has succeeded. That's what people wanted. And uh, again, it's not like Mark Zuckerberg had 10,000 hours in programming. It's just he kind of combined these two different things he was very interested in. So um, another question. Yes, or yes, you. Uh, how important to you, or for how much of your focus is spent on your podcasting, and have other podcasts given you inspiration? Uh, so the question, how much is, so I, I really love podcasting. Um, and I'll tell you, think back to the ages of six through 18. What did you, you should make a list like tonight or tomorrow, make a list of all the things you love doing from the ages of six to 16. Um, the things that you could do where, while you were doing them, you would almost forget about time. Like it would put you into this sort of flow state. And I, I remember when I was 10 years old, I was constantly calling up people who were inspirations to me. And literally I'd put like my tape recorder next to the phone, like in the other room, and I'd be in the other, other phone. And I would just interview people. And I, interviewed like a couple hundred people that way until my parents got the phone bill and they were like, you can't, we, we just went broke. You just 
You just broke the bank on us because phone, you know, people talk about inflation all the time. We would get these like $1,200 phone bills now, which is like, I don't know, $4,000 in today's dollars. And, and now my phone bill is like a flat, like 40 bucks a month or hundred bucks a month. But, uh, so there's been deflation, lots of things just as an aside, but I really loved calling up anybody I wanted to and saying I worked for X. So I, I convinced a local newspaper to, to let me at least say I work for you guys, the South Brunswick Central Post in New Jersey. And, um, and they, let, they said, okay, go for it. And so I just called up everybody and interviewed whoever I wanted. So now I do the same thing. I call up whoever I want and one out of 20 say yes. Even now, like one out, most people say no. And uh, you know, like I'll ask, let's say Louis C.K. and instantly no. Um, uh, many, many people say no. Larry Page, no. Warren Buffett, no. Um, Coolio, yes. <laughs> uh, Mark Cuban, yes. Peter Thiel, yes. So it's just been fun and I've learned so much. I only call people up where I'm gonna put in at least 20 hours per guest preparing. Like I'll read all their books, I'll listen to all their interviews they've done before. In some cases, I'll know them personally, so I'll, I'll have pre-conversations. Uh, I mean, a few weeks ago, I interviewed the largest crack dealer in U.S. history after he spent his 20 years in jail. And uh, so I'm interview I interviewed, uh, I don't know if you know Chris Hadfield. He spent 166 days in space. He sang Space Oddity uh, in the video on YouTube while in space and got 25 million views. So all these amazing people I've interviewed and I've learned so much from them. So it's really important to me. Like I've just learned so much from talking to these inspirational people. So I do it more for me. And then fortunately I have this outlet and that's why they do it. So I put it on iTunes after that. So it's, it's important to me. Two more. Two more. Noah. You know, emotional is an interesting one. If some, if I find out, oh, someone was a good friend, and then I just heard they're talking behind my back, or they're, or, or they're, I don't know, doing something that's not, uh, that I feel is like inappropriate. Like, even people I've grown up with, if they start, like, you know, I always post, before I post on my blog, I kind of tested a post out by posting it on my Facebook wall. And then I always encourage discussion and dissent. If people don't agree with me, that's fine. But sometimes, you've all seen it, people have are, turn into trolls and they start saying these weird, hateful things. If someone comes into my living room and shits on the carpet, they're not allowed back in my living room. So that's the way I treat my relationships. I don't try to repair them. If someone, literally, if someone shits in my living room, they're not allowed back. So I keep them at a distance, even if it's like, by the way, it's never the neighbor down the street. If they it's easy to keep them out of my living room. It's always going to be like a close friend or a family member, someone who spent 30 or 40 years knowing exactly how to press every single button you have. How many people have at least one problematic family member in their lives? <laughs> so it's not an uncommon thing. And you have to learn just, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to disengage for a little bit. I'm going to be like the, the horse whisperer. Like one, I'm going to train them to treat me better. And so that's emotional. Mental is simple. I read a lot, I write a lot, I write 10 ideas a day down. And spiritual is hard, 
because all the time I feel like, like this morning, I'm feeling a little anxious. I'm going to come and speak to all these, you guys, you're all impressive people. You've been going to these meetups. Uh, I did, I was very nervous. I didn't know what I would say. So that's an anxious thought. Instead of saying, I have to do this and I'm scared, I say, I get to speak to all these really amazing people and this is going to be fun. So I start, I try to catch myself and be mindful of what I'm doing and so I can be grateful instead of anxious about it. And so that's how I keep track of, of all those different things. So uh, one more question. Can you talk a little bit, I know you've talked to uh, Scott Adams about systems versus goals. Um, do you really not have any like, goals? You just said you, took, you started your a new company. Yeah. Do you not have like revenue goals and, and sort of things you write down and say this is where we want to be and this is where we're going to be? just literally this everyday check off the it's everyday check off the boxes I've described so it's so he says systems I say themes he's much more famous than me so we'll go with systems uh, so Scott Adams created Dilbert has been on my podcast twice really fun podcast that guy is completely insane you can see how he succeeded at, at Dilbert like he's a great guy uh, and uh, one thing I learned about him or one thing I learned from him if you want to really, and I don't do this, he does this, if you really want to get page views on an article, which I don't care about, if you really want to get page views, take both sides of a controversial issue and argue for both of them. So if you, like, let's take a, a, a abortion. If you're both pro, if you argue the pro-choice side and the pro-life side, both sides are going to hate you <laughs> because they're not going to, the pro-choice side is not going to remember that you defended pro-choice. They're only going to remember that you defended pro-life and vice versa. So both sides will hate you. They'll, arguments, like crazy arguments generate tons of page views and he, he's great at that. But the other thing he says is he doesn't, he says, uh, go, he says it specifically, I'm using his words, goals are bullshit. Because if you have one single goal, you're never going to succeed at it. Like, you're ne like I, okay, somebody else had a goal, a revenue goal target for the co uh, recent company I started. We passed that revenue target. He had it for the year of 2015. We passed that revenue target in two weeks, in the two weeks after launch. So no goal, nobody can predict the future. I see this all the time on TV. I used to go on CNBC all the time and say, you know, Apple's gonna do this, the Dow's gonna do this. And, and then people would argue with me and they would even whisper to me, you know, you all get like an earpiece. They would whisper, okay, jump in right now and argue. And, and, and then another time, they, the, the, after the segment, the producer's like, look, dude, we're just, we're just trying to fill up the segments between commercials. That's all I care about. So if you argue and get something in there, that's great. You could come back. And so... It just, it, I'd have to like wash my hands or take a shower after going on any of these TV shows. Nobody can predict the future. No, if the weatherman can't, we can't. And that applies to all goals. But systems are important. So my system is phys every day improving a little bit, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. It's so much of a system that it's boring to hear me keep repeating it over and over again because that is all I think about all day long. So again, my main thing, though, that I'll leave you with is this idea that if you're not choosing yourself right now, it's a guarantee someone else is making some of your choosing for you, and they're benefiting it from it more than you are. And so thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you, Aaron. You guys have been great. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
Make sure you subscribe now so you don't miss out on the next one. From the team at the New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you have a great day and we'll see you in person at our events soon. Thank you.